There's a ton of powerful stories in the Bible. We sang about a few of them this morning already. Think about Moses parting the Red Sea. What an amazing story that is. And we have actual video footage of it. It's pretty amazing what happened back then. Well, you know, not really. It's Charlton Heston, but he makes a pretty good Moses. <clears throat> but then there's some other stories, and we, we cannot forget these are true stories. And we must also not forget that every time we read a story like that, the Holy Spirit wants to touch our heart as to how that can apply to us and encourage us. And we were singing about how God parted the sea for us. Well, this morning I'd like to start with a story that seems almost a little bit whimsical, but is actually quite powerful. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And if you want to read about it later, you can. It's Luke chapter 19. I won't read verses, I'll just tell you the story. What do we know about Zacchaeus, really? Well, we know he was a tax collector. In fact, he was a chief tax collector. He was one of the top dogs. A little different than how we view the IRS these days. Because, in this case, Zacchaeus was one of the people, the children of Abraham. In a sense, he was collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of the government that was ruling over his people. So a chief tax collector, and uh uh-oh, it says he was wealthy. And people in those days, it wasn't difficult to put two and two together and figure out some of that could have come from extortion, some of it could have come from just pocketing some that should have gone, you know, to the government, whatever. But they always connected, you know, there was a presumed guilt if you were a tax collector, especially if you were rich. The other thing we know about Zacchaeus is that he was short. I'm not sure why that's in the Bible, other than it gives us a little hint about why he had to do what he did next. But the point is, there's nothing wrong with being short. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, look, how many of you who are taller have ever had a song made about you? <laughs> you know, but we've all sing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? Uh, I never had a song made about me. The closest one that uh, people ever came to saying was about me was uh, Jimmy Crack Corn. (laughs) And uh, so I heard that a million times in school. Finally, I just said, oh, that's really funny. I've never heard that before, you know. But we remember Zacchaeus even growing up in Sunday school because he was short. And what that prompted him to do because he wanted to see Jesus was take special effort to run ahead of the crowd I mean, you can picture it if you're kind of short and everyone's a head taller and you can't see through and you want to see Jesus. It didn't tell us exactly why he wanted to see Jesus. There are other seekers in the New Testament and it made it quite clear that they wanted to see Jesus because he was a healer. Others, they wanted to see him because they heard he was the Savior. Others wanted to see him because his words were words of authority. In this case, it didn't tell us exactly why Zacchaeus wanted to do it. But he was short enough that he had this good idea and he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree. This was not just an any old fig tree, this was a sycamore fig tree. Because we have fig trees uh, that often decorate offices and sometimes churches. You don't have one here, but they're called uh, weeping figs. Uh, Ficus benjamina. And in this case, this was a ficus sycamorus. This is a big tree. They grow to 55, 60 feet tall. 
So, I mean, Zacchaeus could have been way up there, I don't know. But he got high enough and made the effort to see over the tops of the people because he so wanted to see Jesus. Then, what was his encounter with Jesus himself? Well, Jesus comes along, and it's also quite clear, if you read the context, that he wasn't like stopping every so often and having little meetings. No, he was on a mission. He was walking, and he was going somewhere. So it was unusual that he would stop at the base of this sycamore fig tree and look up and call him by name, Zacchaeus. Come down immediately. Now, what happened after that was he said, I'm going to your house right now. Now, he could have just called him down and said, Zacchaeus, come on down, stand by the trunk of the tree, because I want to tell you something. Dude, you need to get saved. But he didn't do it that way. There were other purposes. Called him by name, called him down. I'm going to your house now. And the people who were gathered around, the religious people, started to mumble and grumble. He's going to the house of a sinner. And then it says, but Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood up. And I'm thinking, here's a short guy. And now they're accusing him of being a sinner. And maybe they're going to short circuit this whole idea of Jesus going to his house. It says he stood up. What did he do? He had to have been going like this. Standing on his toes going, look, he's going to my house. And he did, even though he was a sinner. Okay, what does that mean to us today? When I sing a song about, you know, God parting the Red Sea, I try to apply that to my life and I think, yeah, there have been times where there's just this blockage and God's really done it for me. But you know, this whimsical story about little Zacchaeus is powerful. There are some of you here today who are just like Zacchaeus. You've never fit in. If you had leprosy in those days, you were an outcast. Zacchaeus didn't have leprosy, but he was ostracized, especially by his own people. Some of you are here this morning and you never quite fit in your family growing up by your own people, maybe your own neighborhood, possibly your own school, maybe your town, maybe the place you work. So I grew up in a high school that had a thousand people just in my class. And so I could never measure up. I could never make the sports team. And I was good, but not that good. And I got B's and B pluses, but I was never on the big honor roll. I never graduated with those Latin terms, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) With special chords coming out and everything. So I kind of didn't fit in with the jocks, and I kind of didn't fit in with the really smart academics, and I liked art, but I wasn't a great artist. You know what I was? I was really ordinary. I was a pretty good ordinary, but just ordinary. And it wasn't until I became a Christian that I realized God wants to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things through them. So after becoming a Christian, I could really relate to Zacchaeus. Some of you have always tried to measure up in certain places where you are. And it gets frustrating because you can't do it. Some of you have formed artificial rising up things like climbing the sycamore fig tree. I've done that more than once. (laughs) I'm going to promote myself. You know what the problem is with promoting yourself? Everyone can see you're promoting yourself. (laughs) It's like climbing that fig tree. But when the Lord raises you up, everyone sees it's not you. It's him through you. And there is no 
more powerful and great place to be with these short days on earth than to be raised up by Jesus Christ. As we were singing earlier, he heals broken hearts. He touches us. So this is such a simple story, but it's hugely powerful. Zacchaeus took the time. We don't know what all was going on in his head. But I want to tell you something today. If you take the time, so will Jesus. He was on a mission. He was surrounded by crowds. But he stopped because he saw a seeker in that tree. Called him by name. Jesus is calling you by name this morning. Some of you feel the most alone when you're in a crowd like this. That was my experience growing up. If I was with my buddy and there was just two of us, I didn't feel alone. But when I was in crowds of people who were really the cool ones and the most looked up upon, I felt the most alone. The Lord wants to stop and tell you he knows your name, call you by name, call you down from your artificial rising up that you've tried to create for yourself to feel better about yourself. Call you down from there for the real thing. I'm going to come in fellowship with you. It's amazing that those crazy religious leaders call Jesus a sinner for doing that. And you know Jesus follows up with the statement, hey, I came to seek and to save the lost. In another place he said, the physician or the doctor, he doesn't come for well people, he comes for people who need to be healed. That's how Jesus comes. There's so much packed into this story, you could unpack what it was like, for example, in those days in Israel and why people looked at people like Zacchaeus in that way. But I just want to point out that he was a seeker and there were many types of seekers shown in the New Testament. The Canaanite woman, uh, the disciples said, send her away, she keeps crying after us. As I mentioned, there was those uh, who went after him because they were seeking a healing when the woman touched his robe and Jesus looks around and like, who touched me? And the crowd was so thick that I, he literally wouldn't have known but he felt virtue go out of him. There were those types that were like Zacchaeus. They wanted to see Jesus so bad. Doesn't look, it doesn't say that Zacchaeus was crying out particularly. But in those days, it wasn't uncommon to climb a tree if there was a crowd, but you were kind of a nerd if you did it. Kids did it. That was okay. But long men, um, old men with long flowing robes climbing a tree, you were kind of a nerd. But he was hungry. He wanted to find out what Jesus was all about. And Jesus acknowledged that. I love that story. Now you may be here today, and and I'm one of these, that I can identify with Zacchaeus as a seeker. You may be here today, and you're not so much seeking, but you would love to share your faith with someone. I would. How we share our faith with someone in the best way is to zero in on the Zacchaeus, to seek the seeker, to find people. They have a certain evidence about them that they're seeking the Lord. I've gone to share my faith with people and, you know, have some maybe a little tract or something, and they've told me to stuff that tract in my ear and get out of there, right? They're not open. It's not going to help to not seek someone who's seeking. 
But it's pretty easy after a while to begin to see the earmarks and the characteristics of somebody that's hungry. And there's no greater privilege on earth than to share the good news with somebody like that of who Jesus Christ is. That he loves them, he knows their name, he calls them down from the tree, he wants to save them, he wants to cleanse them from all their sin and all their unrighteousness and set them on a path of a new life as a new creature in Christ. What an awesome privilege. But there's something bigger going on here in this story. Something even that, I guess you could say, permeates this story and many stories throughout the Bible. And it's this. Zacchaeus did something intentionally. He made an intentional decision. Jesus turned around and did something on purpose. In other words, Zacchaeus could have said, these people don't like me anyway. I'm a chief tax collector. God must not like me very much because I'm so short, I can't even see the guy I want to see. And I heard he's from God. But instead of living down there in that place, he made an intentional decision. I know, I'm going to take time to run ahead of the crowd, climb up in a 55-foot fig tree, and get high enough so I can see God. Folks, we must be intentional about our lives. As we are intentional, God is intentional. Jesus didn't just stop and say, Hey, you up in the tree, sometime I'd like to run into you in the town square, maybe we can have a chat. That wouldn't have been that intentional. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm coming to your house. This whole concept of making decisions on purpose is all throughout Scripture. If you dial back to Moses, he was having a discussion with God. God wasn't so sure that he wanted to send his presence with Moses because he was ticked off at the people. People were being stiff-necked, hard-hearted. Moses made a statement. He said, God, (laughs) if your presence doesn't go with us, please don't even bother to send us up there. Because what will distinguish us from the rest of these nations if it's not your presence? And so then God saw the heart of Moses, and in chapter 34 of Exodus, he says, you're right. I'm going to send my presence with you, and I'm going to do such amazing things that all the people around will say, God is with this people. So then in that context, Moses said something quite amazing. He's standing before the people. Just imagine. You're one of the Israelites, and and, and you're hearing your leader who's done some amazing things. And he said, okay, today I put before you blessings and curses, life or death. Therefore, choose life. Okay, now think of what he just said. Seriously, is someone out in the Israeli audience going to raise his hand and say, I would like curses and death, please, I'm going to choose... No, it's a rhetorical question. What he's saying is if you don't on purpose choose blessings in life, you will get by default curses and death. And I watch this all the time with people around me. They are by default getting curses and death because they don't intentionally choose blessings in life. Moses' successor was Joshua. 
at the end of the book of Joshua, he says something similar, but a little different. He said, look, if it's so hard for you to figure out which God you're going to serve, let me make it simple. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. Then you fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Now let's get this straight. Jesus couldn't possibly have been criticizing Martha for serving because this is the same Jesus who just a little while later says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to learn to be the servant of all. So he wasn't criticizing Martha for serving. What he was criticizing for her, drawing to, to her attention was, you're worried and upset about so many things. And I want to give you this as a clue this morning. Many times when we don't make intentionally good decisions, it's because we're worried and upset about many things. And then he turns to Mary and he said, she has chosen the good thing will not be taken from her. It is getting more and more difficult to make intentional good decisions. I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but I remember when we got our first color TV. For those of you who are here and you're young, it was not a flat screen. Our first TV was black and white. The screen was about this big, and the box that it came in was as big as this stage, you know. (laughs) They were huge. But I remember getting our first color TV and watching Walt Disney's wonderful world of color. And it was NBC, so the NBC peacock would come on first and spread the tail, and there'd be all these different colors. And here we are, 10-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids, but we had four channels. Four, five, nine, and 11. You know how many channels I have now? It's getting more and more difficult, folks, to make intentional decisions that are good ones. We're swimming in a sea of choices in the United States of America. That's not even to mention things like clothing, food, I've been to third world countries where they're very happy to have a few choices to eat. I've had friends come here and they are blown away when they go to our supermarkets. Like, is this some special celebration? No, this is just a normal day in our supermarket. But we are swimming in a sea of choices, of television programs, of things that are on our computers, of things that are on our cell phones, of clothing, of food, We must make intentional choices that are good ones. Here's another reason it's so difficult in 2016 to make good intentional choices. All the people around us, so many around us, they have a wrong understanding of God. And they want us to agree with them. That we're all serving the same God, whatever religion we are, And someday in paradise, we will all sing Kumbaya together. But that's not what Jesus taught, and that's not what the Word of God says. I could take time, for example, and talk for an hour about our present president. 
And even to this day, after seven years, people are still trying to make a case that he's a secret closet Muslim. The first president that was actually accused of being a secret Muslim was Thomas Jefferson. He had a Koran. He was the first one to practice Ramadan in the White House because he had a Muslim cleric dude that he was talking to and it was demanded they could not eat during the day so they fasted all day. First Ramadan recognition in the White House, Thomas Jefferson. And Keith Ellison, who's one of our uh, representatives from Minnesota when he was sworn in, was sworn in on a Koran that was Thomas Jefferson's. So this thing about President Obama being a secret Muslim is nothing new. (laughs) I am more concerned about what he actually really is. He is a pluralist. He believes all religions essentially worship the same God. We're all children of God. But the Bible says the beginning of John that the true children of God are those who believe in his son Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, but I don't want someone to think they're automatically a child of God because they're born on earth. I want to help them see the truth. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, and he has paid for their sins. And if they will reach out and believe that, they will be a child of God. So we're surrounded in a culture Swimming in a culture of pluralism, postmodern, post Christian atmosphere. We've got to make intentional decisions. What's more, we're surrounded by Christians who have the wrong view of God. Yeah, not just the non Christians. It's amazing how many Christians don't have the right view of God. Because we so don't, don't want to hurt people, we so don't want to stick out that we say, yeah, maybe there's some merit in the fact that we all worship the same God. He just has different names. There's a guy named Stephen Prothero who wrote a New York, Best Times, uh, New York Times bestseller called God is Not One, and he's not an evangelical Christian believer. He's just trying to point out that he's done all the study and all the gods of all the different religions, and they're not the same. And he wrote a second book called Christian Literacy, And he points out how in America, the vast majority, whatever religion you are, you don't understand your book. And you don't understand your God because we're illiterate. Over 80% of the people in America believe the Bible contains the answers to all life's major questions. But a very small percent read the Bible or could even tell you the names of the four Gospels. That's where the disconnect is, see? That's why we must be intentional about our decisions. I know that in the um, adult Sunday school, you're going through the book of Hebrews. Bob did a great job this morning, and right now I'm going to read the entire book of Hebrews. (laughs) You knew I was kidding. But I want to hit some top points here in the book of Hebrews in all the chapters just to show you what a life is like when you don't make an intentional decision. The writer of Hebrews, these were Jewish people, some of who had believed in Jesus but were beginning to back away because it was costing them. Some were getting kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't want to do that, so they backed away. 
Some were going forward and said, I'm going to do it anyway, even at the cost of losing my home or whatever. But to the ones who were slip-sliding away, to the ones who weren't making intentional decisions, the writer of Hebrews says this, you are slothful. Frankly, folks, sometimes we don't make intentional decisions because we're lazy. I say we because that's me. Sometimes I'm lazy. You ever seen a sloth at a zoo? Or maybe on Animal Planet? Those guys move slow. They move so slow, some of them have moss growing on their back. That's how slow they move. You ever seen a cheetah? with moss growing on its back. No, they move fast. But these Hebrew Christians had become lazy, slothful. He also said, you've lost the initial enthusiasm for your faith. How many of us had such an initial enthusiasm? I remember I did when I was a teenager and I accepted Christ and we had revival in our high school. Hundreds of kids got saved. I was so fired up and I prayed with my friend to get baptized in the Holy Spirit and I did. Let me tell you something. After you go on for a while... You get used to it. You begin to lose some of that initial enthusiasm. The Apostle Paul says it a little different in his letter to the Romans. He says, don't ever be lacking in zeal. Is that possible? It would have to be possible if it's in the Word of God. But there would have to be some other things to go along with it to show us how to not ever be lacking in zeal. So the writer of Hebrews says, you have failed to grow, you have failed to progress. You're seriously deficient in your spiritual understanding and in your discernment. They weren't making intentional decisions. You have ceased to attend Christian meetings. How many know it takes an intentional decision to get here on a Sunday morning? Your alarm goes off. You could just, right? You ever see Groundhog Day, Bill Murray? I would love to take my alarm clock and just... But we don't. Because we've made an intentional decision to come to church. And we get up and we put clothes on. Thank you, all of you, for putting clothes on. appreciate that. (laughs) We drive our cars. We get here. No, on September 11th in 2001, when those terrorists flew the planes into the Twin Towers, it was a shock to America. There were three things that overnight became incredibly popular. First thing, going to church became incredibly popular. Church attendance spiked in America. The other thing was buying board games because people wanted to buy board games and cocoon in their homes where it was safe. The third thing was marriage licenses. People were convicted. I don't know what it has to do with terrorism in the towers, but marriage licenses. You know how long it took for attendance in church to go back to where it was before 9-11? Six months. For six months, we were afraid, we were shocked, and we wanted to go to church. For six months, people made intentional decisions. And after the six months, they quit making intentional decisions. The writer of Hebrews says you're not actively loyal to your Christian leaders. You need to be exhorted in a fresh way to imitate those who have gone before you. 
in the faith. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 13. You're easily carried away by strange and new teachings. Sometimes the orthodox historical teachings of the Bible can be boring to people because it's not some new tintillating thing. And so we stray. And we go after these strange teachings. You're in danger of coming short of God's promises. You're in danger of drifting away from the things that you've heard. You're even in danger of completely abandoning the faith in a deliberate, persistent apostasy. That sounds really bad. This is a real downer. But I'm not here to make this a downer. I'm here to tell you the opposite is true for Victory Christian Church. And interestingly, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, the writer says this, even though we speak like this, dear friends, can you imagine someone saying all those things and then still calling them friends? (laughs) Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. As we were talking in our Hebrews class today, (laughs) how does this all come about? How can we make these intentionally good decisions? Yeah, we recognize that we're swimming in a sea of choices. We recognize that people around us who don't know God don't understand God. We recognize even believers have a wrong view of God sometimes. But how can we do the right thing? And the solution is you just got to climb a tree. Actually, it's not. It's the opposite. You need to meet with Jesus. So here's a passage. I'll tell you where it is in a minute. And then we're going to wind up with this. This is the actual true answer of how we make intentionally good decisions. The grace of God has brought salvation to all people. It's appeared. Everyone agree with that? The grace of God brings salvation to all people. This grace teaches us to say no. That's an intentional decision. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God teaches us to say no to worldly passions. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright lives, godly lives in this present age. It's as true now as the day it was written. It is not by our own strength. It is not by our own nobleness. I didn't get up one day and say, I'm a pretty noble guy. (laughs) I think I'll be a Christian from here on. No, I came under conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's grace led me into salvation. And after I was saved, I looked back and I said, wow, it really was the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation to all people teaches us to make intentional decisions. Intentional decisions to not be ungodly, intentional decisions to not follow worldly passions, intentional decisions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There's something about all the commandments in the Bible that we see, including these about making good decisions, and that is this. The commandment never assumes The ability. All those commandments that you see 
God does not assume that you have the ability to do it. What he assumes is you'll make yourself available to his grace and then he'll do it through you for your good and for his glory. Amen? Thank you.